Today is Tuesday, May 23rd, 2017, time for episode 5 of the Barnhart Podcast. Anne, how was your week? Outstanding. Yet another beautiful week in the spring. Um, hope everybody out there is doing well and just happy to be to be able to go to Mass every day and worship God and, and be where I am when I am. So thanks be to God. Amen. And since I'm a super nerd, I pay attention to things like the website. You may have noticed we switched the audio player over to YouTube, and that did have a nice uh, effect on lowering the overall bandwidth pulled from the website. So good on that. And um, looks like the, the word is still getting out. Uh, news headlines this morning. Uh, it's still a developing story, but it looks like there has been a, another event in the religion of peace. Actually, it hasn't been officially described as that yet, but there's been a terrorist attack at a music concert in the United Kingdom. The, according to one news source, there are at least 3,500 known Islamic terrorists in the United Kingdom, so maybe this isn't the most surprising thing in the world. Um, I'm sure we'll talk about this in the coming weeks. Um, well, I mean, as we were discussing as we were doing our pre-show chat, you know, wh what really is there to say? Is this shocking? No, of course not. It, what's shocking is when you have a day when there isn't something like this. Because they have allowed basically an invasion force of of the Islamic Caliphate to enter into Europe. This has all been done, facilitated by, you know, George Soros and these non-governmental organizations, quote unquote, doing it at a huge profit. And also now anti-Pope Bergoglio aggressively wants the church in this business, too, in this this business of human trafficking and specifically of importing this Islamic occupation force into um, into Europe. It's a miracle when there's a day that there isn't something like this going on, because this is part and parcel. This is what Islam, the political system of Islam is. It's what it's about. And this is only going to accelerate. And it's it, it, it's morbidly fascinating to watch the suicidal post-Christian Europeans, they observe themselves being slaughtered, and there is basically no response to this other than, well, let's just import more of these people. Let's prove how, how awesome and tolerant we are by literally importing the people who are, going, who are raping, murdering, and destroying, exterminating our own race, our own civilization, our own culture. It is a morbidly fascinating thing to watch this all unfold. Yeah, and we're going to have more details about this, uh, like like I said. It, and it may turn out just to be some disgruntled uh, UK person, uh, some Brit, but chances are it's probably not. Yeah, I don't think so. <laughs> you, yeah, the reflex reactions are usually accurate in this case. Yep. Yeah. Okay, so if if you've been following Anne's uh, career on the internet with any for any time, unless you're brand new to not finding out who this Anne Barnhart character is, uh, you probably will will have heard this next guy's name. Uh, I want to read a little bit from uh, a Wall Street not Wall Street Journal. It's a New York Times article. Uh, in his cramped Wall Street office, Mr. Corzine is plotting his next and possibly final act: starting a hedge fund, and not just any hedge fund but one designed to take advantage of the turmoil in the Trump era. A little backgrounder, uh, John Corzine, for somebody who's never heard, who is this guy and what exactly is a hedge fund for people who don't understand what these market entities are? Well, a hedge fund is actually, it's an inaccurate name. It makes it sound um, like it, it's, a, it's a fund for investing money. Um, and it, the word hedge implies risk management. That's the opposite of what hedge funds are. They're purely speculative. Um, many times they're hyper aggressive, um, especially when you have a psychopath like John Corzine involved. So using the moniker hedge fund is actually inaccurate. True hedging is the, the reduction of risk, the management of risk. Hedge funds are speculative um, common funds that people invest money in. And then people like John Corzine have trading discretion over this fund of money and they do whatever they see fit and they invest it as they see fit. So that's what a hedge fund is. Um, Corzine, the man, um, is a <laughs> full-blown psychopath, um, you know, textbook diabolical narcissist. If any of you have, uh, for those of you who have watched, um, 
and read my work on diabolical narcissism. This guy is textbook, and he is a full-blown psychopath. Oh, and was, a little more background on this guy. If you don't know who John Corzine is, at one point in time, he he ran Goldman Sachs, although yep, he, was manu- yeah. he was maneuvered out, according to this article, which I think is a very polite way of saying he ticked off some people and they fired him. Uh, he took off over a uh, a group called MF Global, which I know you're going to talk about. He mm-hmm. used he used to be the the Democratic governor of a very Democratic state and lost that. He even got fired from that by the by the voters of of uh, New Jersey. Mm-hmm. And I believe he had a, a a role in the Obama White House for a while. Um, so this guy he's had some very high positions, but it, at the same time he's been forced out under questionable circumstances. So it, this is a guy who's he's not brand new on Wall Street. He's not brand new in, in the in the halls of power, but he's there's a in the tech industry. You look at somebody's resume. It's like you've got a lot of job changes under questionable circumstances. What exactly is your deal? Yeah, but you know, for people for people like Corzine, it it just doesn't even matter. In fact, it's a point of pride. It is a point of pride to the diabolical narcissist that they are untouchable. And, you know, that's what he deems himself to be. He was he was in the 80s and 90s. He was the head of Goldman Sachs. He was golden parachuted out. They Goldman Sachs specifically recruited him and sent him up the chain of command because he was a psychopath. And then they knew that they could they could ride his coattails as long as his psychopathy was beneficial to the company. And then when it stopped being beneficial to the company, they were free to fire him because he was he was their creation. He was their boy. So, you know, it wasn't like he was Goldman or he was Sachs. He was just he was a psychopath that they set up the ladder. So they cut him loose. And I believe when they cut him loose from Goldman Sachs, they paid him six hundred million to go away. That was his severance package. Um, so then he um, decides to what does he do first? He ran for Senate first and he was United States senator um, in New Jersey And then he ended up being governor. He ran for governor and was governor of New Jersey. And that was a disaster, too, of course, as a far left Democrat um, and was beaten by Chris Christie. Chris Christie is actually who um, who showed John Corzine the door in in New Jersey out of the governor's mansion. So. When he loses uh, to Christie, he then decides he wants to get back into um, the financial industry. And what he settles on is becoming the um, president, CEO, whatever you want to call it. He was the head honcho of the biggest commodities brokerage firm in the United States called MF Global. Um, And this company has been through many iterations. It's always been a sleazy company. It used to be called Refco, R-E-F-C-O, years ago, if there's any people who remember that name and those nefarious characters from back in the day. It's all the same company. They just changed the shingle on the front door. But this was, in fact, the largest commodities brokerage clearinghouse in the United States. He takes this thing over and um, promptly starts operating it as if it's his own personal little trading fund. And by little, I mean, you know, several billion dollars. So he is, he's a psychopath and he is taking huge, enormous, extremely risky positions, very delicate. I mean, in the sense that if, if the market, if it, if the slightest little wind in the market blows, he could be, it it could potentially wipe out the entire company. And sure enough, long story short, that's what happened. Um, and what he did is that when the wind shifted on his, uh, on his position and on he got Greek a Greek government he, bonds, if I'm not mistaken, um, Italian also Italian trading derivatives, um, repos, which if you want to know what all this is, I explain it in my economics video. So if you go to my YouTube channel and there's the huge economics presentation, it's all explained. And it's actually, it's not terribly difficult to understand what these instruments are. You just have to spend 45 minutes, you know, listening and having someone explain it to you. But once it's explained, it's not terribly difficult. But he's trading, you know, credit default swaps and repos and reverse repos on Italian sovereign, excuse me, European sovereign bonds, sovereign paper. So bonds 
issued by Italy, bonds issued by Greece, bonds issued, I think he was in Portuguese paper too, stuff like that. And, you know, there's just this tiny little fluctuation in the market and it completely wipes him it wipes him out and so what he does is that he he's got this this commodity brokerage firm and all of these customer accounts i think there were something like 45,000 customer accounts now understand when we're talking about customer accounts we are not talking about people who invested in the company mf global that's not what it is it's people who were doing business with mf global depositing their money in their own sac- sacrosanct account that they were using to trade futures contracts. They were not investing in the company MF Global. They were not buying stock in MF Global. MF Global was acting as um, almost as a depository institution. In fact, as a depository institution that had more guarantees, more backstops than even your bank than your deposit account at a bank because FDIC insurance only goes to $250,000. There was no cap on the protection afforded to money that was sitting in a brokerage account like this. So all of these people, and a lot of them were farmers and ranchers who were using the futures markets to do true hedging and forward delivery. That's what a lot of these accounts were, was just little mom and pop um, agricultural producers who were hedging their cattle, hedging their grain, et cetera, et cetera. He goes in and in order to pay his margin call to, I believe the margin call went to JP Morgan. um, He swept all, and by swept, I mean stole. He just stone cold stole every penny of the customer's funds and you and sent that to pay his margin call with JP Morgan on on his private in-house psychopathic trading that he was trading for the company he stole everyone's money out of their accounts they came in these customers came in on i believe it was either the i think it was the 28th of October of 2011, they opened up their accounts, they looked at their account statements, and every single customer of that firm had a zero balance in their account. Okay? All of their money is gone. All of it. Now, if you want to continue reading on this New York Times article, it gets it gets so dishonest. Oh, and by the way, I should tell you the, the amount of money that this was. It was $1.6 billion dollars. With a B, $1.6 billion. Snap, John Corzine gave the order. They swept all of the customer funds and used it to pay his in-house margin call and send it off to New York. Now, as you read this New York Times article, it is so sleazy because they refuse to say that the money was stolen. They say the money went missing. I'm going to use language here. What a crock of shit. You can't you can't lose money that is sent in a wire transfer. This is just dishonesty beyond beyond quantification. And yet the the press, everybody still keeps using these terms. The money went missing. Um, It was it, it was misplaced. Corzine had no idea. Corzine gave the order. Every every back office employee in that company knew that they would spend the rest of their lives in prison if they swept all the customer funds and sent it off, you know, to pay to pay the in-house margin call. That was done specifically at Corzine's at Corzine's direction with the guarantee that whoever did it actually executed the wire transfer that um, they would they would be protected and they would not go to prison. It's that serious. I mean, one point six billion dollars. We're not talking about, you know, (laughs) we're not talking about somebody's milk money or something. And and so (laughs) that the New York Times article, I don't know, super nerd. Are you have you got the article queued up? Can you see specific paragraphs where it's just this disgusting lying about what happened. Oh, it, it's a rehabilitation article. Uh, yeah. I, I was almost going to use the term, hey, geography, but that'll be when he retires. 
Uh, no, it, it's this is definitely uh, an article meant to capitalize on the fact that most Americans have about a 24-minute attention span and have totally forgotten what this guy did in 2011. He went away to a country club and did whatever he did for a few years, and now he's permitted to come back, and the, the rehabilitation is here, and, and uh, this is somebody who's the smartest kid in the room, and he's going to make money on the fact that we've got a buffoon in the White House who's going to do dumb things, and he can capitalize on, on it in the market. That's the long and short of what this article That's is all about. That's the New York Times article, yeah. And that, <laughs> you know, Corzine isn't the smartest kid in the room. He's actually adult. You can pull up on YouTube. He would do things um, like be the guest co-host on the CNBC morning financial news program. The Morning Joe? And not morning. It was before Morning Joe, when it was pure financial, you know, commentary on CNBC. And he would be the the guest co-anchor. And the man can't speak. He can't he can't put a a coherent sentence together. He was um, he, he had been obviously rehearsing in the mirror, gesticulating. Okay, if if you're so dumb that you can't sit down as a former head of Goldman Sachs and just riff mildly on the financial markets, if you can't even be yourself, if you can't gesticulate naturally, what does that say about your intellect? This is clearly not an intelligent man, but he's a psychopath and he's protected. And that's the case with so many of them. Um, Hillary Clinton, the same way, not a terribly intelligent woman. Bill Clinton is intelligent. Uh, Hillary Clinton is not. The reason that Hillary Clinton has had this this tremendous quote unquote success, if we can use that word, that she's had is because she's a ruthless, ruthless psychopath. That's what it takes. What's another example? Jorge Bergoglio, the antipope. This is not an intelligent man. We've already discussed this at length. Why is it that he's just steamrolling over everyone and everything in the church, in the curia, because he's a psychopath and he's, and he's willing to act. He's willing to do these things. Whereas, you know, you have Pope Benedict Ratzinger who is an intelligent man. He's mistaken about many things, but he's obviously an intelligent man. His brain works and but he's weak. He what he couldn't do anything. He won't do anything. You know, all he had to do to defend himself and to turn the church around was to just call press conferences and just start laying it on the line. This is the situation. This is what I'm doing. Da, 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 da. Just lay it out there. But he was so weak that he couldn't even do that. People like Corzine, not terribly bright, but psychopathic and willing to execute and willing to do these things. And what happens is these people, they, they draw power, they, they accumulate power, and then once they have a certain amount of power, they do, in a certain sense, become untouchable, and they operate outside of the law, which Corzine clearly, I mean, this is, this is the poster child for operating outside the law. You steal $1.6 billion. Everybody knows you did it. Everyone knows exactly what happened. And all you do is shrug your shoulders and say, hmm, I don't know what happened. Uh, I guess the money just sort of went missing. And then you sit back and you watch as the entire system capitulates to you, essentially gets down on its knees in front of you and says, you can do no wrong. Not only that, but we will do everything we possibly can to protect you. This lawlessness, this this business of there not being equal protection under the law, of there not being a functioning rule of law. This is why I shut my firm down. The futures markets are highly leveraged. They're risky. And what they absolutely require is the rule of law, like hardcore. It has to be there. There has to be protection. If there is this business that these protected class elitist psychopaths can come in and just steal everybody's money and there's nothing you can do, there's no recourse, which brings me to another point that the New York Times articles and so many of this, these articles and all of this reportage about Corzine and MF Global that they get wrong. You know, they say, well, the money was all found and it was eventually returned. Let me tell you the truth of what happened. As I said, a lot of these accounts that Corzine stole every penny out of 
were the accounts of fairly small um, livestock and grain producers. And they had a, a large chunk of their operating capital sitting in these accounts because it was safe. I mean, that's the irony. Because these accounts were safe and they weren't limited to $250,000 as bank accounts are, you were actually technically safer parking money in your futures account than you were parking it in, in a bank. So a lot of these guys would keep a, a large chunk of their operating capital in their futures account. When Corzine steals all of this money, these farmers and ranchers had no recourse. There was nothing they could do. The, the, I mean, the exchange was laughing at them. The regulators were laughing at them. It, it, everyone was laughing at them. And imagine you, you're running a business and all of a sudden, all of your operating capital is gone. So you know what happened? People that I started referring to as recovery sharks started swooping in and saying, okay, I will pay you cash. I will pay you 40. I think the average worked out by the time everything was said and done. 40 cents on the dollar. Let's say, let's say you had 400,000 sitting in your MF Global account. I'll pay you 40 cents on the dollar in cash right now in exchange for the rights to 100% of your claim. So what they were saying is, okay, Corzine just stole 400 grand from you. Um, you are absolutely cash strapped. You're going to go bankrupt if you do not get some cash now. I'll give you 160,000 cash of your 400,000, but then I own all the rights of recovery for, for the money that was stolen out of your account. So if this money ever comes back, then the recovery shark gets it. And the, the person whose money was, was stolen has effectively cashed out of the whole thing for 160,000 right now. Okay. So these people, they didn't get all of their money back. They were, they were further victimized by the fact that in their desperation, in order to not go bankrupt, so many of them had to sell their claim and had to do it for something like 40 cents on the dollar. So no, it, it isn't a case of there were no victims of, of, John Corzine's, um, of John Corzine's theft. In fact, there's this whole other class of people who profiteered off of the thing. Um, these these recovery sharks and the victims were and still are these small accounts, many of whom were agricultural producers. So it just it just chaps my hide when, as you said, they do this this rehabilitation of all this, trying to make it sound like John Corzine. Oh, it, it was just a big misunderstanding. Oh, you know, he he just temporarily lost that money, but everything's fine. No, everything was not fine, not fine at all. It's one of the largest single um, acts of of public theft. I mean, you know, obviously we can talk about all the 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 theft that goes on within the government and so on and so forth. But I mean, in terms of someone just boldly publicly stealing money. I think 1.6 billion has got to be right up there and that's exactly what he did. It it's definitely a lot of money and and I've been I've been following this story since it broke. In fact, it was shortly after that that I became aware of your blog and I I knew that there was uh the possible mechanic of clawback which may have never happened, but I never knew about the um, the recovery sharks, um, I, if I got the term right there, I never knew yeah. about them. It totally makes sense. Um, mm -hmm. I, I knew I knew that the accounts had been locked out during trading hours. Uh, I had heard some very angry rants from some people who were actually precious metal speculators, not speculators. Mm -hmm. They were they were investors and and uh, hedging on that who lost six figures on when when their accounts were locked out at MF Global. Well, um, they were they were locked out of their accounts. This as a broker, this was just horrifying to watch. And I didn't clear through MF Global. Um, I cleared through another company. But a as a broker standing and watching this unfold, they locked the people out of their accounts so that. OK, so imagine what happens. You've, you've got your account. Let's say you're you're a cattleman. You've got some hedges on. You've got some cattle positions on. You've got some corn positions on. You come in, you open up your account, and you have zero you have zero balance. Whereas the day before, let's say you had you had three hundred thousand in your account, today you have a zero cash balance. They're calling you because because your cash balance is now at zero, 
but you still have all of these positions on, you have a margin call. So I'm not I'm not joking. People don't realize this. MF Global, while this was going on, was calling people demanding that they send the money to margin their positions after all of their cash had been stolen out of their accounts. No joke. And of course, most most people said no, you know, go (laughs) two words, seven letters, um, three of which are F (laughs) was a common response. And and so you come in and they won't let you liquidate either the exchange, the Chicago Mercantile Exchange. D- decided uh, this is and this is incomprehensible that they were they were freezing all of these accounts, but they wouldn't even let the people liquidate their positions. So they wouldn't if you have positions on and you say, well, OK, all my money has been stolen. Quick, get me get me out of my positions. I, I what if this goes against me? I don't I don't want to be sending more money into this sucking maw of theft. That is this this now completely imploded and destroyed company, um, they wouldn't let them out. And this went on for days and days, the better part of a week. And I, you know, I've got cattlemen calling me who, who don't do their, who didn't do their futures business with me, who had, you know, accounts with other, with other firms and other brokers who cleared through MF global. And they're calling me saying, what, what in the hell do I do? They, they won't even let me out and the market's going against me. And, you know, there were some people that were just desperately trying to scramble to open another account with another firm like with me. And but it all happens so fast and it takes so long to get a futures account open that um, they generally they most people didn't get it done. I think I only got two accounts opened. And what the, the purpose for doing that is that these people who were stuck in the lurch and couldn't even get out of their positions, they wanted to take an offsetting position in a different account somewhere so at least they could stop the bleeding, you know? I mean, consider the, the absolute chaos, the lawlessness. It, it was just the situation was disgusting, and it became very clear to me very, very quickly that if, if this is the new normal, if we're going to have this level of lawlessness and the exchange no longer has any interest in doing its job, which is guaranteeing everybody's accounts. See, that's the other thing that was so criminal in all of this. The Chicago Mercantile Exchange, the reason that it exists is to be the universal guarantor. That's why all of these exchanges exist. You don't have to worry about who the person is technically on the other side of your position, who your counterparty is. It doesn't matter who your counterparty is because the exchange stands in the middle and guarantees everybody's positions. So if the person who's on the other side of your position, if they are, if they don't pay their margin call, if they're insolvent, if whatever happens, that has that has no bearing on you because it's the exchange that stands in the middle and makes make sure that everything's cool. And it also, this applies to when firms fail. So what the Chicago Mercantile Exchange should have done is as soon as this happened at MF Global, it should have stepped in and effectively bought the company and said, okay, we are, we're, we're putting the 1.6 billion back in everybody's accounts, but we now own MF Global. This has happened before. And then what they generally would do is they would sell off these companies piecemeal, you know, they refused to do that. They had over $8 billion in their emergency slush fund, which was solely for instances like this. If there was a firm failure, that's what that $8 billion slush fund was for. They refused to put it up. They, they refused to do their job for the first time in their existence and said no and locked those people out of their, out of their accounts, wouldn't let them liquidate for almost a week. The whole paradigm just collapsed right in front of me, right in front of all of us. And that's why, you know, it it became clear to me, I'm going to, as a moral person, I feel that if I continue on as a commodity broker, that I will have to personally, personally guarantee all of my customers' funds so that if this happens again, if my firm pulls this maneuver and this precedent has now been set, I would feel that I was morally obligated to personally, out of my own estate, guarantee all of my customers' positions. And that is simply impossible. I mean, we're talking 
millions and millions. And I was just a little, I was just a little podunk one man office. And I was, you know, my book was, you know, three, three and a half million. That's the kind of money that I would have to, to cough up if, if all of my customers accounts were swept, I can't do that. See, and if I can't do that, and I understand what the situation is, but I continue on being a commodity broker, then what I'm doing by continuing on is I'm saying I have confidence and I believe in this system. I, I am ratifying this system by participating in it. So you see, for me, understanding what the new normal was and the lawlessness of it, knowing morally that I would need to backstop my entire office and knowing also that I was not financially capable of doing that. If I continued on, every single day of my life would be an act of just complete dishonesty. And so not only for my own, you know, my own personal protection, both financially and protecting my soul, but also in the best interests of my clients, you guys shouldn't be participating in this. And, you know, it was funny. I when I made the decision, I just got out my Rolodex and started going down the line and calling everybody and saying, I'm quitting. Here's the situation. And I think that you should just, you know, liquidate your positions. Don't transfer out. I don't think you should continue to trade futures at all. Every single client said, I agree with you. Liquidate me. I don't want anything more to do with this. Every single one of them. So that's that was the that's what happened. And, you know, people say, oh, look, the markets are still operating. The markets are still you know, it didn't all crash and burn like you thought it would. But, you know, I would. I would urge you to look at the lawlessness that and how how much more lawless our nation, our society is just in the in the five years. Is it five years, five and a half years since this happened, how the rule of law is just constantly, constantly, constantly under attack. And if you will allow me, because that that's the thing that I sit back and look at all of these events that have happened. And how they all they they all converge. Look at exactly the same thing that's happening in the church. What is under daily, daily attack by the anti-pope Bergoglio and his toadies in in the church? It's the rule of law, essentially. It, it is. And what we're talking about now is the divine law and the natural law. That's what's under attack. So all of these things, there's this nexus. It's all it's all coming together it's all converging. Um, all of these things are interrelated. So you're saying, Anne, are you honestly trying to make a connection between MF Global and anti-Pope Bergoglio in the church? Absolutely. Absolutely, I am, because it's all of a piece. If you pull the focus back far enough, you can see the commonality of all of these things. And, and one of the major attacks that Satan is launching in every, in every field and every form that he can is an attack on the notion of the rule of law itself. Because if there is no rule of law, you, you have chaos. Human civilization just dissolves without the rule of law. So, yeah, there it is. And to the point of why the Chicago Mercantile did not backstop the customers of MF Global, it's because they knew MF Global wasn't the only operation doing this, and their $8 billion was nothing compared to the total um, potential loss they might have to pay out. Correct? Yes, absolutely. Um, I had some associates that I was you know, coordinating with and all of this, and they got in and they got a meeting with Terry Duffy who is the CEO of the Chicago Mercantile Exchange. And he said to them, so, I mean, this isn't me reporting something that I heard with my own ears. It's secondhand. But the source is very trustworthy. He looked them in the eye and he said, we absolutely cannot um, um, set this precedent. We can't set this precedent. Even, even though that that is the total reason for being for the exchange itself. And what that also tells you is that people like Terry Duffy, they're, they're completely aware of the fact that all of these brokerage houses and so forth, that they are operating in, in the sort of way that Corzine was. That is taking illegally customer funds, leveraging them and speculating on them. And 
this goes back to, again, if you want to, if you have watched my economics presentation or we care to, the reason that these companies started engaging in all of these incredibly risky, leveraged, speculative actions is because as soon as Obama came in, interest rates went to zero. It's called ZERP, zero interest rate policy. This business of having zero uh, interest rate effectively at zero, man, when I started, when I started my firm, which was in 2006, I used to make, um, I used to make enough off of interest to pay for my quote system and to pay for most of my, um, most of my telephone bill because we were getting, um, with cash that you had parked, you would get, um, T bill, 90 day T bill rates, which even when I started my firm in 2006, you're talking about something in the high 4%. I don't even, I can't remember if, if it was still 5%, but I mean, you know, every month there was a significant uh, there was a significant credit to my bottom line just off of the interest from cash that was parked. And the other thing that I did uh, and what made me a tremendous amount of, of enemies in the futures industry was I, I told the dirty little secret. The dirty little secret in all of these brokerage houses and so on and so forth, their, their main money-making source, their, ma- their main cash flow and revenue source was not commissions, which shocks most people. And I was shocked when I found it out. These people make most of their money off of the interest that they get on the customer's funds, you see. And so what I did is I said, hey, I'm not going to keep, hey, customers, I'm not going to keep the interest that's made on your cash balances. Here's what I'll do. I'll I'll pay, I'll split it. In fact, I gave half to the clearing firm and I gave half to the customer and I gave half to the clearing firm because they, they, it was an extra act of accounting and bookkeeping and so forth for them to put through these, these credits every month into my customer's accounts. I paid my customers interest. And so they were getting half of the 90 day T bill rate on their free cash balances. I was one of the only, if not the only broker in the entire country who did that, who, who gave back and made interest payments to my customers. And, oh, I made enemies because of that. And I would go out and I would explain this to people. Guys, it's not the commission. That's not where these people are making their money off of you. They're making their money off of the interest. Now, when interest rates, when 90-day T-bill rates were 5%, I mean, this is, a, this is an enormous amount of money. This is a huge amount of money. Um, and then, boom, overnight, Interest rates go to zero. This policy comes in. It's sold to the public as, oh, isn't this wonderful? You know, you can you can buy a car. You can do zero sixty financing on a car. Isn't this great? Isn't this fantastic? Blah blah blah. Which is such a lie. You can buy a house at two percent. You can buy a house at two percent. Blah blah blah. Isn't this great? Isn't this fantastic? No, it really, really isn't. Um, Money has time value, and zero percent is not the true interest rate market. If the if the true interest rate market were allowed to emerge and and wasn't synthetically pushed down by the Federal Reserve Bank as it is, then you know the the economy would be completely different on completely different footing. Um, it's a very bad thing because it's it's based on a lie. The lie is that money has no time value. And if when interest rates go negative, what it's saying is that money has less than zero time value. And again, going back to the economics video that I made, what the concept that I start with introducing people to at the very beginning of that presentation is what is money itself? Money is a proxy for human life. Money is the fungible proxy for a human being's capacity to labor, produce, and create through time. So if you say and you adopt a system by which you say by edict money has no time value, what you're actually saying is that human life has no value. And we can tell people by their friends and associations. And the big one here is look at who historically has been beating the drum saying that there should be no interest rate. There should be a zero interest rate, no such thing as as interest. 
um, Marxists, communists, the Nazis, and who else? That's right, Musloids, who are actually the biggest users on the planet. And if you haven't read my explanations, my essays explaining um, Sharia finance, I mean, that that is such a usurious racket in the true sense of the word. I mean, you, you'll read that and you'll be laughing this description of what Sharia finance is because you'll say nobody can possibly be this stupid. But of course they are. So that was quite a tangent. But there you go. Not, not bad for a short topic. <laughs> yeah, not bad. Not bad. Oh, goodness. Yeah, we, we, we might not have a short show after all. Yeah. Um, and I've written down probably five or six different links I'm going to put in the show notes on this one. So mm -hmm. th this is going to be quite an education. If this is new to you, then you've got a lot of reading to do. Mm -hmm. um, on the topic of Sharia and Islamic finance, uh, the president, well, Donald Trump, uh, depends upon your, your outlook on who, whether or not you think he's the president. Uh, Donald Trump was in Saudi Arabia recently closing an arms deal. I mean, uh, <laughs> visiting, visiting, with, visiting with the Saudi king. Yeah. Um, this and, and among the arms deal. Yeah, I, I'm not joking about that. He, he they closed a 110 billion dollar arms deal. Part of it was selling at least four new warships to the Saudi Arabian uh, fleet. In aggregate, the United States is is helping the Islamic world build the largest fleet that they've had since the Battle of Lepanto, and that's a topic we should get into another time. Uh, also, while in Saudi Arabia. Donald gave a talk, did a sword dance. The optics of this visit are nothing like Obama's visits to Saudi Arabia. Is this different? Is it better? Is it worse? Well, I mean, I I really want to reemphasize the point you just made about the fact that Donald Trump has just handed a navy to the Islamic Caliphate for the first time. Basically, the Islamic Caliphate now now will have a functioning navy for the first time since the Battle of Lepanto, which is what, 1570 or 1571. Well, um, to be fair, he's selling four littoral class ships, which aren't aren't the most uh, capable boats in the world. The, the French had sold them four frigates also. And the United States has been selling a lot of their older warships, including one that I served on in the Navy, to the Turks. Uh so yes, we're we're supplying them hardware, but it's not necessarily the highest end. But this the the big deal here is that the the deal was struck that uh, we were going to, uh, in principle, have agreed to transfer the uh, Aegis uh, air defense system to the Saudis, and that is a big deal. Very big deal. Um, we're, we're arming these people, and my question is to all of the the Trump people out there: How is this different from Hillary Clinton? How is this different? You know, the the incursion of of Libya, establishing the beachhead at Benghazi, that was all about arming the Musloids. It was all about creating ISIS and getting this avenue in to where we, we are arming Musloids. Trump is doing exactly the same thing, doing it openly. I, I don't understand how people can look at this. For the love of Pete, the Saudis are were the people behind 9-11. The Saudis are behind and are funding all of these mosques with all of these suicide bombers coming out of them. That's all being done out of Saudi Arabia. That is the money that, that is, is backing all of this. Okay, You go to in Washington, around Washington, D.C., you go to London, you go into Germany and you go find these hotbed mosques. It's 100 percent Saudi money. And. Trump goes over there and people are all excited. Oh, he he said he said Islamic um, extremism or Islamic terrorism or something like that. And he said something about, you know, you have to start telling these people that if they commit acts of, of suicide terror, that their their souls will be eternally condemned. Why, why is he going and saying anything even that even remotely ratifies Islam at all? See, we're never we're never going to make any progress on this until we start calling this thing for what it is. It is a satanic political system. It is not one of the world's great religions. It isn't even a religion. It's a political system. And further, all religions that are not the one true religion, that is Jesus Christ and his holy church, all religions are false. There's no such thing. All non-Christian religions are false. In fact, all non-Catholic religions are false. 
if we, how can you go over there and do the same George W. Bush? Oh, Islam means peace. Oh, these people, these terrorists, they're just, they're just corrupting and perverting this great peaceful religion. No, I'm sorry, man. And then you get into bed with these people. You're handing these people a Navy. You're arming them. This is the force that will be used to conquer Europe. And I'm not joking about that. It might not be tomorrow. It might not be next year. But at some point, the, the caliphate is going to physically invade and overrun Europe. And it will be done with munitions and with with um, with armament that has been given to them largely by the United States and to some extent by Western Europe. But I mean, really, really, who's it going to be? It's going to be the United States that has been, is and continues to now openly arm these people. And Trump did this this sword dance Hello, do you not know about the sword of Islam? Do you not know what the symbolism of all of that is? They are laughing. They are laughing at Trump and how they are playing him. And um, Super Nerd, in a conversation that we had earlier in the week, he brought up a really, really good point that, you know, if you want to go back and bring up our favorite word, kayfabe, you know what it seems to me is some pretty enormous, intense kayfabe right now is this antagonism between Sunni and Shia, between the Saudis and the Iranians. Don't you guys see that what they've decided to do is to have this kayfabe false antagonism and then go to the United States and say, oh, you need to arm us so that we can defend ourselves against Iran. And oh, here you go. Here's an arm. Here's a, here's a navy. Here's a, a missile system. Here's this. Here's that. And these these guys are laughing all the way to the bank. I mean, they're in the they're in the locker room afterward, just exactly like the wrestlers, sharing a cigarette and a beer and and patting each other on the back and saying, "Hey, we put on a really good show tonight, didn't we?" It's it's all kayfabe. It's all fake. And we and Trump are just playing completely into this. And I just I sit here and marvel at all these people. Oh, look at what a what a fantastic job Trump did in Saudi Arabia. I'm just what, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? It's the same damn thing. He's doing the same damn thing that the Clintons were doing and the Obama regime was doing. It's just now that it's your guy on your team that's doing it. Oh, it's so wonderful. Um, I, I'm sorry, but I'm, I'm not on board with that. Not at all. And don't forget that the larger Islamic world does have nuclear weapons. Well, Pakistan does. Um, yeah. yeah. And, and they're, they're on the same side of the fence. If you're, whether you're looking at kayfabe or not, they're the same strain of, uh, of, of Islam as Saudi Arabia. And there is a the theory uh, that, that if Iran and Saudi Arabia ever actually got into a shooting war, that the agreement is in place that the Pakistanis would supply the Saudis with at least one nuclear weapon to use. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it's just the whole damn thing. Is, I don't understand how people can can look at this situation and not see what's going on. It just seems it seems so clear. Oh, arm us, arm us, arm us. We need to defend ourselves against, you know, the the bad, the bad Muslims. They're all bad. The exercise that I use and that um, I would encourage people to do, look, look at Trump's speech, look at any of this reportage. And all you need to do is replace the word Islam with Musloid or, or you know, um, excuse me, replace Islam with Nazi or Nazism, and replace caliphate with Third Reich, or something like that, you see? So take all words that, that apply to Islam in a given speech, and replace it with words that pertain to Nazism and the Third Reich. And then listen to it, and say, wait, does this, does this sound morally sane? And you'll, you'll instantly hear the point that's being made here. Islam is a political system exactly like Nazism, exactly like the Third Reich. And if anything, it's worse. It's considerably worse. It's, you know, masquerading as a religion, trying to, to wrap itself in, in these fake 
liturgical actions and so forth. That's exactly what the Nazis were doing, too. Hitler was trying to build a, a religion. He was trying to market the thing as a religion. He even had he even had a trinity. The, you know, um, the Germany is God, the father. Uh, Hitler himself is God, the son. And uh, the Nazi party is God, the Holy Spirit. He was even trying to establish a Trinitarian aspect to all of this. Look at those Nuremberg rallies, those torchlight rallies and stuff. That's all liturgy. He was trying to establish a religion. Islam just jumped on the religion bandwagon from from the get go. It said, we're going to ride on the coattails of religion right out of the chute. It's a political system. It is a purely worldly, earthly political system. All it's concerned about is acquisition of territory, earthly territory, and, you know, control of the populations and the masses on on that territory. There's they don't give a crap. Why do you think that they have this jizya tax? Well, you know, if you go ahead and you pay us a tax then you can, we will tolerate your presence as a non-practicing, as a non-practicing Muslim. For a nominal fee, we will not run you through with the sword of yeah, Islam. Yeah, for a nominal fee, we will not run you through with the sword of Islam. Um, does that sound like they actually believe in anything that has to do with the afterlife, the fate of the human soul? You see, I mean, use your brain and think these things through. They clearly don't care. Christianity says, you know, we're not a political system. What what we're concerned with is the eternal fate of the human soul. What's going to happen to you and everyone when you die? And oh, by the way, since this is the truth, um, governments should orient themselves such that they are, you know, backstopping and supporting all of this. But Christianity itself is not obviously a political system. Islam is saying, we don't give a crap about your soul. That's all, that's all a bunch of BS. That's a racket. What we want is we want to conquer. We want the territory and you will submit to us and you can for a nominal fee opt out of the actual practice of our fake phony religion. We don't, we don't care if you actually practice it because let's face it, we all know it's bullshit anyway. Just pay us this tax and we'll leave you alone. I mean, th- that right there tells you what what the dynamic at play here is. So I I don't know. I just look at the events of the past few days and and shake my head, especially at the people who just out of this blind allegiance to this man, just desperately trying to spin everything that he does as super fantastic. And it's not that I'm trying to spin everything that he does as super bad. I mean, really, I'm not, I don't want to do that. I want to look at Trump and say, Hey, he did something really good, but I I just don't see that at all. I see the same old crap with just, you know, the sides have changed. Now the people who were rah, rah, yay before are boo, and the people who were boo before are rah, rah, yay. And I that that makes me sick, you know, not having principles, not having consistency of principles and consistency of thought. This business of just turning on a dime when when your boy and your team um, is on the field. Eh, no, that just makes my flesh crawl. And that's just the first step on his visit of the top three religions throughout the world. Uh, yesterday, Trump was in Israel. I'm sure we'll talk about that more next week, uh, unless you want to talk about it now. And tomorrow he's going to be in the Vatican talking with... Um, well, somebody who wears white, <laughs> but uh, we'll we'll talk about we'll talk about that uh, more next week. I'm sure. I'm sure. Uh, we had we had a little bit of listener feedback this last week. Okay. Um, a listener wrote in to thank us for discuss, having a discussion about general confession. He didn't realize that uh, it could be done in a short amount of time, and and yeah, it, it's if you plan ahead and if if you take the time uh, to examine your conscience and and write it down on a piece of paper is, is one example and burn the thing afterwards. Yeah, you, you, <laughs> definitely you, burn. You, you, you don't, you don't want to be the, you, you don't, unless you, unless you want to want to imitate St. Augustine, you're free to publish your sins, but it's certainly not a requirement. No, 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 and, no. And, and if, and if you, if you talk about what you confess, that's not breaking the seal of confession. It's, it's the priest who can't talk about it, but you don't want to do this accidentally either. Um, but the, the point being is that this, this, uh, gentleman who emailed in didn't realize this is something that could be done quickly. I've, I've been on, um, spiritual retreats probably six times in my life and, and done general confessions. And, and the first three days of those prim- primarily, 
uh, you are preparing for your general confession. And if, if you're well prepared, you can knock that out in five or seven minutes. Mm-hmm. So it's uh, a general rule of thumb when I'm in the confession line is however many people are in line, you, you figure three to five minutes per head. That's how long you're going to be in line. Right. So if, if you do a good preparation, it can be as short as uh, a normal confession. However, you probably should schedule ahead if possible and, and let Father know you're going to be doing a general confession because part of it is you uh, – covering everything you've that your life since your last general confession or your whole life if you've never done one before but also the um the father's side of that giving you advice for your life i mean that's that's half of uh of the benefit of confession and if you're doing something that is a general overview of your life the 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 kind of advice you get in reply is not just hey a weekly tune-up or two weekly tune-up depending on how often you go and how are you doing on this particular aspect it's your life as a whole so that's that's really where you want to budget more time give father a heads up that this is coming to right Uh, another listener feedback question are there going to be transcripts of the podcast (laughs) (laughs) i'll Uh, let you take that super nerd no the well, I was going to say that, that uh, the, the podcast was more a, a reaction, uh, you said, to not having time to write the 2,500-word essays. But uh, I've been writing notes on, on what's the topic of this, uh, this particular episode going to be. And one of the, one of the topics – or one of the possible titles is here is, is Reading is Required. Uh, we just covered probably seven or eight links of things that are already written on the website. So in terms of uh, is there going to be a, a, a transcript, there, there really sort of already is. Uh, it's Anne's website. And there's going to be a bunch of links uh, in, in the show notes here. So if if you've never heard Anne before, and this this topic or the, these topics are interesting, and you want to learn more, there's tons and tons of of reading out there uh, on Anne's website and elsewhere for getting up to speed on these topics. Yeah, um, it, it's really interesting to me that the population can be can be split into two groups. There's people who vastly prefer to read. And there's people who vastly prefer to listen slash watch. So, you know, I've, I've gotten feedback over the years from people saying, I really prefer, and this blows my mind, I can't, I can't imagine why anyone would prefer to listen to me rather, rather than to read. Um, but there are people who just, they absorb information better with more facility, however you want to describe it, if it is in the form of um, an audio or a video recording. So begrudgingly, okay, if, if that's what if that's what y'all want, and I, I do sometimes feel bad because I feel like the podcasts are just rehashing things that we've are that I've already written and are already on the website. But there's a lot of people who say, you know, I'm not going to read a 2,500 word essay, but I will sit down and listen to an hour long podcast. Okay, we'll we'll attack it from we'll burn the candle from both sides. Then happy to help. Well, and I'm definitely one of those people. And uh, I'm, I'm doing my best to slow down and, and speaking here. And, and that's part of uh, my habit that I, I listen to a lot of podcasts. I listen to a lot of audiobooks, and I tend to listen at, at uh, one and a half or double speed, mm. and which has de- which has developed the habit that I talk about as fast as I listen to these things. Ah. So I, I, it's 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 a it's a minor act of violence to to force myself to slow down. But, uh, yeah, I, I have an audible account. I listen to a lot of books and, and it's a way of recovering time. Uh, either uh, commuting, obviously yeah, a lot commuting. of people have mm-hmm. a lot of people spend ten hours a week in their cars, ten to twenty hours depending on where you live, commuting to and from work. Yeah. Um, other other people, you know, it's a way to recover uh, time when the when the brain is not engaged, uh, doing yard work, doing cleaning around the house, any number of things, going for a walk, uh, working out. It, it's a way to maximize um, the intellectual in uptake capability, and. Yeah, you know, a, a lot of people have the ability to take in their information. There, there's a really famous quote that faith comes through hearing. Uh, so it, it's it's not like it's unprecedented. It's not like uh, it should be that surprising that that people like to hear things sure. as opposed to reading it. Um, I just think that my voice is. I personally think that my voice is grating, and I I always find it. I always find it somewhat shocking that people say, "Oh, I, I enjoy listening to you," because I don't think that I have. I don't think I have a, a, a nice voice at all. I think it's it's harsh and and somewhat shrill. But it also it 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 projects in a certain sense. So I don't 
I don't know. I guess there's enough people that like listening that we had to we had to switch over to YouTube to get the the bandwidth to go down. So I guess there's enough people who enjoy listening. But we'll keep doing this. It's 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 fun. I enjoy it. You know, it takes an hour a week to do, and and Super Nerd actually throws in quite a bit more work doing all the editing and uploading and managing of things on the on the server side. But um, I th- I don't think it's a an oppressive amount of time, and and it's easy to do now. We have the technology while while we can. Let's take advantage of it. Absolutely. And uh, speaking of videos, the Diabolical Narcissism D- Narcissism DVD is about ready to ship, actually. The, oh, great. The templates are all set up. The automated production is more or less set up. I need to, need to order some more uh, some more things for that. I need to order some packaging materials. But the, the, the web page for being able to order that should be up within a couple of weeks. And I know I said two weeks, five weeks ago, but uh, that will be up very shortly. Uh, a lot of things going on right now. But uh, look for that soon. And um, if you want audio of that, send an email to podcast at barnhart.biz and I'll hook you up with the link for that. Very good. Excellent. Well, that's been an educational show and and, uh, obviously lots of required reading. Any final uh, comments? Just want to reiterate my gratitude to one and all, especially the donors. Um, Again, just absolutely stunned that anybody thinks that <laughs> what I write and, and what I say merits um, any sort of any sort of compensation at all um, and just eternally grateful to one and all and reiterating again the holy sacrifice of the mass is offered every Monday Tuesday and Wednesday for um, for my donors and even for people who have decided that they hate me once you're on the list you're on the list forever because God and I we, we have an agreement and it's all worked out so Thanks. Thanks again. And uh, just hope everyone has a safe, blessed week. And we'll look forward to talking to you again next week. Okay. Until next week, I'm Super Nerd, and we'll see you then. God bless, guys. Take care.